You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Good morning. It is good to be here to open God's Word to you again this morning as we complete our series from Hebrews 3 and 4. It is... A, been a wonderful experience to get to preach multiple messages back to back. I thank Pastor Hans and the elders for giving me the opportunity. And today we close that, that series. And I want to begin with a question. <clears throat> what is a priest? What is a priest? What comes to mind when you think of the word priest? Perhaps a picture of the Pope pops into your head. Maybe it's a Jewish Pharisee from a Jesus-era movie with long robes, long tassels, long hair, and long beard. Everything long. (laughs) Maybe, for me, for me anyways, it's the guy at the end of the Princess Bride movie. You know the one. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together to die. That guy. If you've not seen the movie, he's a pasty white Catholic priest dressed to the nines for a wedding ceremony, and he speaks with a terrible wisp. Well, good-humored as that scene is, a priest is no laughing matter. So what is a priest? A priest is someone who stands between man and God. Someone who represents God to man and someone who represents man to God. It is a critical role without parallel in the human experience. There is no more important task on the planet than to serve as the go-between for God and man. Why do people need priests? Because of the great chasm between man and God. Every human being intuitively feels there's this gap. We don't need a London subway speaker telling us every 60 seconds to mind the gap. The distance between God and man is built into our spiritual DNA. And that is why every man-made religion on, the planet, er, on planet Earth has priests or priest-like individuals. It is written on our hearts that we are separated from God. And this is truth. There is a great chasm between man and God. Not only are we separated by location, by power, by ability, by knowledge, by wisdom, and so many other attributes, but ultimately we are separated from God by His holiness. His holiness. God is absolutely perfect, 1,000% holy, without sin, blemish, fault, error, or any imperfection whatsoever. He is in a league of His own with no peer. And then there's us. Ugly, wretched, racked with sin in every fiber of our being. Spiritual lepers dying of a vicious and cruel flesh-eating disease. And we feel this condition of ours naturally. Our consciences convict us of our wrongdoing. The Bible even instructs us that even our best efforts to do good on our own are stained with sin and seen as filthy rags to God. This sin within you and me separates us. It separates us from this perfectly holy God. And there is a great chasm between God and us. We need a priest or we are doomed. 
If there is no one to stand in the gap, no one to go between us and God, no one to mediate for us, we have no hope. Wrath, judgment, fury, and hell are what awaits everyone who has no priest. Like I said, the role of the priest is the most important human role in all of human history. Let's come to our text this morning where we meet our great high priest. Our text for the sermon this morning is Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, the last three verses of chapter 4. We've been studying through Hebrews 3 and 4 over the month of August, and we'll wrap up our mini-series today, our mini-series called Rest for the Restless. It's been, a, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Hebrews, so I want to start our reading back in chapter 3, verse 12, and read through all of chapter 4, simply to stir up our minds by way of reminder of what, of what we've looked at so far. So we'll read an abnormally long chunk here, uh, Hebrews 3, starting in verse 12, and we'll read through our text this morning. God's word says, Hebrews 3, 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray as we enter this text. Father, we thank you for your word, how it directs us, how it teaches us. May your spirit work in us today to give us a fuller picture, a fuller, beautiful vision of Jesus Christ in all his glory, his position, and his compassion. Let we lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we enter the first paragraph of the main argument of the book of Hebrews. The topic of Christ's priesthood will dominate chapters 5 through 10, and it forms the central doctrine that the book of Hebrews delivers to the church eternal, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. It is the grand statement in the grand theme of this letter. We've looked at that grand theme. It is that Jesus is better. That's what Hebrews is all about. Jesus is better. And the greatest proof that Jesus is better is that he is our great high priest. This letter, just by way of review, was written to a group of struggling, suffering Jews, Jews who had converted to Christianity and become a local church. This local church of Jewish converts to Christ was possibly located in modern-day Greece or Albania, that area, but we're not exactly sure. What is plain, though, is that they were beginning to suffer for their faith. They had an ongoing and intense Jewish community ostracism. They'd been totally kicked out, and that was normal for Jews to do to those who converted to Christianity. And there was a growing Roman persecution. And these Christians were being tempted to reject Christ and return to their former ways and their former beliefs as a Jew. Judaism was a protected and allowed religion in the Roman, under Roman law, and there was great familial uh, support and prosperity benefits to being in the Jewish community. And so while they had these temptations to return to Judaism, while these were plentiful and good-looking, the author of Hebrews writes to boldly show them that Jesus is better. Do not give up. Do not give in. Do not go back. And as he wrote, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This message applies directly to us, as we've seen in our prior messages from this text. We've been exhorted to beware a restless heart. We've seen that there is rest for the restless, and we've been charged to enter God's rest. Everything so far in chapter 3 and 4 has been bold exhortation. Don't fall away, friend. Cling to God. Cling to Jesus. Don't let sin get a foothold in your life and lead you astray. We need that message, and we've received it. We've received that message, and now, today, we come to the throne of grace. Here at the end of chapter 4, we receive positive reinforcement exhortation turns to encouragement. While the fear of God's wrath motivates us to persevere, now we also get a portrait of Christ's love to motivate us to keep the faith. And oh, how dearly we need this. The fear of God drives us to the cross. It drives us to repentance, but it is the love of God that melts us, that captures our hearts for good. And today we'll see with our Jewish brothers and sisters from 2,000 years ago that because of Christ's priesthood, compassion, and grace, we should cling to him and bring to him our every need. 
That's what our text will show us today. We are at the throne of grace. Let's start with verse 14, considering what it teaches. Point number one there in your notes, if you're a note-taking person, point number one is cling to your priest. Cling to your priest. Verse 14 says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. An amazing truth is here revealed, friends. We have a great high priest. Notice the words, we have. He is ours. He is yours. Jesus is yours. You and I are separated from God by so many things, but most of all our sin. We have no hope of coming to God on our own, but we learn unequivocally that we have a great high priest. If you are in Christ, what a joy to comprehend that. Friend, what good is Christ's priesthood, though, if Christ is not yours? If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, repenting of your sin and putting all your faith in Christ's substitutionary death to save you, then you have no priest. So please ponder here at the outset of this message, is Christ yours? Is Christ your priest? Friend, you can be reconciled to God today by coming to this great high priest. And that is exactly what he is. He's not just one priest among many. He is the great high priest. This term, great high priest, it's fascinating. It's one of a kind. It is certainly being used here to set Christ apart from and above the Jewish priests under the old covenant. You see, under the old covenant, God had set up one special priest that was above the whole priesthood, and he was called the high priest. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, there were also many priests all at the same time. These were the people who performed the sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. All the priests were from the tribe of Levi. One whole tribe of Israel had been set apart to serve God in special ways to function before God. Now, not every single Levite was a priest, but every single priest was a Levite. You could be a Levite and not be a priest. There were other roles for, for Levites. But the priests were all Levites, and they offered the sacrifices that the law of God prescribed to enable God's people to live in right standing before God, to live in right standing before him. But over these many priests, there was one high priest, the high priest. He had to be a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother. And Aaron, of course, was a Levite himself. But there was only one high priest at a time, and he would hold this office his entire life. And his chief duty under the law was to annually atone for the unintentional sins of the nation. On one day each year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the place of God's special dwelling. This occurred on the Day of Atonement. It was a day to expiate all the sins and uncleanness that remained among the people despite the regular sacrifices. It was an essential day each year to certify that God had forgiven all Israel's sin and that God's people were in right standing with God. And this great action could only be carried out by the high priest. Without it, Israel would be cut off from God. Only the high priest could stand in the gap between God and man. And now, Jesus takes that role. But Jesus is not just a high priest. He is the great 
high priest. Here and only here in the scriptures do we have that word great added. This is where the author of Hebrews introduces Jesus as the high priest, so it's fitting to start with this. He is the highest of the high priest, the highest of all time. In every way, Jesus is above and beyond all conceptions of a Jewish priest. He is superior. He is better. We further read in verse 14 about him that he has passed through the heavens. This great high priest has passed through the heavens. Well, in Jewish thought, there were multiple levels of heavens. You remember Paul talking about the third heavens. Some Jews thought there were seven layers of heaven. That doesn't matter at all for this this morning. Jesus passed through them all. After he rose from the dead, he walked on earth for 40 days, and on the 40th day, he ascended from the earth. His body was taken up in glorious fashion. Listen to the account from Acts 1, 9 to 11. It says, And when Jesus had said these things, as the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. End quote. Well, there's a lot of heaven being spoken of there. And I say to you, it is all speaking about the sky. It is all the sky above. It's simply the way that they talked about what you look at up above you. Jesus ascended and he passed through the sky. He passed through the heavens. And the whole point of this is his transcendence. He is above. Ephesians 4.10 states that Christ has ascended far above all heavens. Hebrews 7.26 adds that he's exalted high above the heavens. He is transcendent above all worldly things and is back with God on his throne. Why belabor this point in the scriptures? Why make a big deal about his ascension? Because, friends, when Christ was on earth, he was not a priest. Christ was not a priest when he was here on earth. It was, in fact, impossible for him to be a priest on earth, for he was not from the tribe of Levi. He was much less a descendant of Aaron to be the high priest. No, Jesus was from the kingly line of Judah. And while on earth, if you follow his ministry carefully, you notice that he avoids any and all priestly functions. He does nothing that a priest would do. But when he ascended on high, he became our great high priest. Chapters 5 through 9 of Hebrews explain how he was able to become a priest, though not one of Aaron's Levitical descendants, but we won't get into that today. But do look ahead with me at Hebrews chapter 5. I want you to see that he became a priest when he ascended into heaven. Hebrews 5, start in verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice how in verse five, Christ did not do the exalting to become the priest. It was God who appointed him. God appointed him. Now look at verse seven again, Hebrews five. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
Notice the sequential flow there in verses 9 to 10. When he was made perfect, speaking of his ascension into heaven, when he was glorified, when this happened, verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And when he became this source, verse 10 says, he was designated by God as a high priest. It's fascinating. Turn over to Psalm 110 now, in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 110. This passage was quoted there in Hebrews 5, 6. Psalm 110 is the ascension psalm. It is what God says to Jesus the moment that he passed through the heavens and entered into glory. And this is amazing stuff here. The curtain is pulled back and we get a behind-the-scenes glimpse into what happened when resurrected and perfect Jesus returned home to heaven. Psalm 110, verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Just pause there. Let me reread that verse, but substituting the appropriate names in the first line. Psalm 110.1, Yahweh God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Jesus entered heaven at his ascension, God said, sit here at my right hand and stay here until I've prepared the world to send you back. Verses 2, 3, and, two and 3, as well as 5, 6, and 7, then explain some of what will happen when God does send Jesus back. We are waiting for that day today. But verse 4 adds something fascinating. And it's what was quoted in Hebrews 5. Look at Psalm 110.4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Friends, when the resurrected and glorified Jesus returned home to heaven, God declared then Jesus to be a priest forever. In that moment, Jesus became our great high priest. He was here the sacrifice to reconcile us to God, and now he is our priest to mediate between us and God. As one old preacher once said, he died down here to save us, and he lives up there to keep us saved. In Jesus, we now have a great high priest. So what do we do with this incredible knowledge? What do we do with this? Cling to your priest. Cling to your priest. Look at how Hebrews 4.14 ends. Hebrews 4.14 ends, let us hold fast our confession. Because Jesus is our priest, don't forsake the faith. Cling tightly to what you believe. Hold fast to Jesus who died and was raised and was glorified. This is the natural and right response for us when we consider who Christ is. We must hold fast to these things. We must believe them and confess them before others. And so in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he did on the cross, and in light of who Jesus became upon his ascension, we have every reason to cling tightly to our confession. But friends, there's more in our text. Like a good baker who adds scrumptious ingredient after ingredient, so has the author of Hebrews folding them in for us for a sweet and savory taste of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is not just a great high priest at God's right hand, as though he were far removed from us now. No, that's not it at all. Verse 15 reminds us that he is present with us every day by our side, helping us through thick and thin. Verse 15 calls us to think upon his compassion. 
Think upon his compassion. That's point two there. Think upon his compassion. Look back at verse 15 with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When Christ left earth, it would be easy to argue that he left us behind, much like a mother hen leaves her chicks once they've hatched. We might think that Christ had gone back to heaven, sat down at God's right hand, and was now utterly uninterested in what happened here. He gave us new birth, but he's gone now. Greek gods of the day cared not a week for their followers. They were too busy doing things that gods do, like war and stuff. They really only paid attention if you just sacrificed to them something really important, doing incredible acts of homage or obeisance. They could easily, this could easily have become how Christians viewed Christ. That was the view of the day of the gods. This could be how we viewed Christ. But not so, says God's word. Aren't we thankful for that? Using a double negative here in verse 15, a double negative to state the positive, the author of Hebrews gives us an incredible truth that our high priest is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He is not unable to sympathize. Rather, he is able all the more. He is now more able. Why is he now more able to sympathize with us? Why is his compassion upon us greater than ever before? It's because he has become one of us. He has suffered like one of us. Friends, Jesus has been tempted and tested like one of us. In becoming a man, Christ took on human flesh and human frailty in every respect, the verse says. He took it on in every respect, in all things. There is nothing that you and I experience that Christ did not. Sure, Christ never rode a car. He never held an iPhone. He never experienced air conditioning, and he never got rickrolled by a friend. Okay, but that's not the point. When it comes to our inner spiritual frailty, the things that test us and try us, that cause us to go astray and to stumble and fall, Christ experienced all of those same tests and trials. He personally has been through it all. And he did it all, as the verse says, and as we know, without sin. Without sin. And this is the incredible thing. Jesus suffered many tests and temptations, and yet he never stumbled, not once. Now, some have speculated that since he is God and it is impossible for God to sin, that these were not real temptations that he faced. How could they be real if he could never, ever actually give in? It's a logical premise, but it's a false conclusion. They were real real temptations. The devil really did tempt him three times in the wilderness. Jesus really did have opportunity to sin. But he did not sin. And many would say theologically he could not sin. So were they real temptations? Well, imagine the strongest ship in the U.S. Navy with the strongest defenses and the most powerful offensive weaponry. Now picture a lone oarsman in a dinghy with a slingshot. Okay, that puny dinghy can attempt a real attack on the warship. He may even hit the warship with all of his puny pellets. But the warship, of course, will be unscathed. There was no real chance for the dinghy's attack to succeed, and yet it was still a real attack. That's a picture of Christ's temptation. He was truly tempted and attacked from every conceivative, conceivable angle. 
But the quality of his character is so far superior, indeed being perfect, flawless, that no attack, no temptation, no matter how strong and concentrated, can penetrate his holy armor. Indeed, Christ even took far greater temptation than the rest of us ever will. Many times, sadly, you and I, we succumb to the mounting pressure of temptation. As the volume of temptation increases, sometimes we give in. And so we've never experienced temptation in the fullest sense. But Jesus never gave in. His temptation always went to the fullest degree, often far beyond where you and I would have given up. To use another boat analogy, if you and I were to be a boat in the water and pressure was constantly added to our boat, pushing us downward into the water, eventually our hull would split open and water would rush in and the pressure would be relieved. But never Christ. The pressure of temptation for him often went beyond what a normal human could bear and yet he never broke. So not only does Christ understand how you have been tempted, he himself has been tempted to an even greater degree than you have. And he's withstood. He truly has experienced temptation. He truly has been tested and he has come out victorious. We're thankful for that. Turn back with me one page to Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. It shows the importance of Christ's humanity, enabling him to sympathize with us. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you catch that in verse 17? He had to be made a human just like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Have you caught that? Were Jesus never a man, were he just made our priest by God's decree without becoming human, he would not understand us experientially. He would not know what it is to suffer and be tested in certain ways. Instead, you can't really know what a person has experienced unless you've walked in their shoes. You don't fully know the pain of losing a child unless you've lost one yourself. You don't know the weight of an eating cancer unless you've had it yourself. That's one reason why Christ had to come to earth, to experience humanity. Conceptually, Christ is omniscient God, can know what it's like to be human, absolutely. But until he actually became a human and experienced what we experience, he was unable to truly grasp what humans face and thus unable to truly sympathize with us. It sounds odd to say that with the omniscience of God, but that's what the Bible reveals. Had Jesus not become man, his compassion for us would have been stilted. But now, as the scriptures say, he has been made perfect. God the Son has experienced our human condition, and therefore he is able to sympathize with us. He is able to help us in the ways that we need help. And so, as Hebrews 2.18 says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is why he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And now we've come to it, that key word, that linchpin regarding Christ's care for us. Sympathize. Sympathize. 
Christ is able to sympathize with us. What does that mean? Well, our English word sympathize actually comes straight from the equivalent Greek word sympathes. Sympathize, sympathes, same word. In the Greek, it's a compound word, being the Greek word for with, some, attached to the verb to suffer, pathes, some pathes, to suffer with. And that is the literal meaning of sympathize. This sympathy, though, does not depict Jesus as one who is cool toward our ministry, not a detached sympathy, not something that's just out there. No, it's a, it's a felt solidarity with us. When we are pained, Jesus feels the pain too. When we suffer, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it's not. The heart of Christ, friends, is drawn to you and me in our distress. He sees you in your weakness and he is there with you. What are you going through, friends? What hardship are you experiencing right now? As your pastor, I know some of what some of you are going through. I know some of you have great pain and trials even at this moment. And I would wager, of course, that there are many more of you here today going through things that I know nothing about. Possibly pastors Bill and Hans know nothing of either. But friend, Jesus Christ does. He knows everything about your pain, including every little detail that no pastor could know or understand. And he is with you in it. Even in this very moment, by your side, his heartbeat pulses with yours in the agony and anxiety and pressure that you feel. He loves you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your miseries. He even knows your sins. Dane Ortland has some helpful thoughts about Christ's clo closeness with us in our weaknesses and suffering. Ortland writes, our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into isolation. The Bible corrects this. Our pain never outstrips what Jesus himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. End quote. He is not a high priest, unable to sympathize. Christ is the exact opposite. He is with you under every burden you bear. Amen. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan of Puritan, fully understood this concept. This man could write. He could take a, a single Bible verse and squeeze out of it every last drop of beautiful theology and write about it for 300 pages. And that's exactly what he did with this verse, Hebrews 4.15. His book was published in 1651 and his original title gives the fullness of this verse's theology. It's an old school title, one of those long ones, being 42 words long. Listen to this title of his book on Hebrews 4.15. He called this book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners on Earth or a treatise demonstrating the gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his humane nature, now in glory, unto his members under all sorts of infirmities, either of sin or misery. That's the title of his book. What is the heart of Christ in heaven? The second half of the title calls it the gracious 
disposition and tender affection of Christ. Goodwin dearly wants to convince his readers, his disheartened and burdened believers, that even though Christ is now in heaven, he is just as affectionate and tender to sinners and sufferers as when he walked this earth. Think of the Gospels and how Christ healed and cared for people. Friend, there has been no change in his compassion whatsoever. Your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is just as compassionate, just as approachable by you in heaven today as when he walked this earth. To use Goodwin's words, verse 15, can take our hands and lay them on Christ's chest and let us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us even now while he is in glory. Verse 15, friends, is our stethoscope to hear the vigorous heartbeat of Christ on our behalf. Have you seen Christ in this way? As your great high priest, but more than that, as your compassionate counselor, sympathizing with you every step of the way? If you could find such a friend on earth, you would cling to them. You would talk with them every day. You would open up about all your trials and pains, all your sins and failures. You would share with them all your stories and deepest emotions. And friends, Christ wants to be that friend to you. He is that friend for you. Christ wants you to open up to him. So friends, bring him your prayers. Bring him your prayers. That's point number three. That's what verse 16 is all about. Bring him your prayers. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Based on the compassionate love of Christ for you, here in verse 16, you are summoned to the throne room. You are summoned to the throne room. And there is no risk for you, not like Esther when she entered the throne room of King Ahasuerus, not at all. In fact, you are bidden to come in. Draw near, the text says. Draw near, Christ bids you to come. But how is this possible? Man cannot approach God. We are so far separated from him. We need an intermediary. We need a go-between to stand in the gap. We need a priest. And here again, Jesus steps in. He is our mediator. By his own sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, he has reconciled God to man. That gap we've spoken of that stood in the way, that great chasm that's fixed between God and us, Christ obliterated it with his death and resurrection. He paid sin's penalty in full. He conquered the power of death and by his perfect sinless life that he lived, he can now impute that righteousness to you. He can credit it. He can charge his perfection to your account. For all who repent and believe in Jesus, his perfect righteousness covers us. And when God looks at us as Christians, he sees 100% perfection. That gap between God and man has been removed. It's been filled by Jesus Christ. This separation was physically demonstrated with an earthly symbol the curtain in the temple. It was a literal separation and a symbolic one. But Matthew 27 and verses 50 and 51 speaks of the moment of Christ's death in this way and tells us what happened. 
Matthew 27, 15, 51, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was the curtain that symbolically and literally separated God from man. In the Old Testament temple, there was the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt, and it was separated from the rest of the temple by that thick curtain. This place was inaccessible to man. Anyone who dared enter died on the spot, except for that high priest, who once a year on the Day of Atonement would enter this holy place, this Holy of Holies, to atone for the sins of the nation. When Christ went to heaven, he entered the real, the true holy of holies, and he put an end to this system. The curtain was torn, and God may now be directly approached by people. Consider Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. Listen to these amazing verses. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What? You can't go to the holy of holies. Yes, you can. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Christ's death removed this veil, this curtain. And so as verse 22 there said, we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Friends, we have full access to God. We have full access to God. So come to him. Run to his throne. Run to his throne. It is a throne of grace. And I am so glad it is a throne of grace, aren't you? If it was a throne of justice, I dare say we would tremble and stay away. If it was a throne of power, I'm certain we would fear it and avoid it. But it is called a throne of grace, a dispensary, a place where grace upon grace is poured out, flowing down freely upon all who seek it. God's heart is for you. You are loved by God. So bring to him your prayers. We should not hesitate to approach such a glorious throne. But perhaps I will stumble over my words at such majesty. Perhaps I will say something stupid while I'm on holy ground. Hebrews 4.16 says nonsense. We are called by God to draw near to the throne with confidence. Some translations say boldly or with boldness. This Greek word here conveys much more than just confidence or boldness, however. Yes, that's included. But the Greek word means to speak freely, to be unreserved in your speech. It's to be open and frank with God. No, this is not about being buddy-buddy with God, not at all. He is the God of the universe. We must come to him in worshipful awe and reverence, and yet we may come speaking freely. He is God, but he is also man. There is freedom in his court to unburden ourselves and to say what we need to say in the way we need to say it. There is freedom of speech at the throne of grace. Perhaps you can think of yourself before God as a little child before his parents. When toddlers first learn to talk, they say their words quite imperfectly. They break all the rules of grammar. Sometimes they are almost impossible to understand. Strangers need mom or dad to translate because the babble is so indistinct. 
I recall baby Oliver once saying, Kai, guppies. And I knew exactly what he meant. He wanted help turning on mom's iPad. As mom or dad, you understand what they're getting at. And you love to hear them talk like that. It's their natural speech and it's so endearing. Friend, maybe you're a newer believer or maybe you've not prayed much or maybe you're still just afraid of messing up your words before God himself. Don't be. Don't be afraid of what you say or how you say it. Go to God as a little child would go to his parents. Open up your heart. Don't worry about the words. Use the language that flows out of your heart. And when you don't know what to say or you can't get any words out, just tell God that too. Ask God to read the desires of your heart, those inexpressible things, and he will. He will. He loves to hear us pray. And you know the beauty of it? Being that he is a God of grace who sits on a throne of grace, he will give you grace. He will. Look at the end of verse 16. We pray that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of needs. Oh, friends, mercy and grace are found at God's throne. Mercy for past sins committed, grace for every hurdle you will face. <clears throat> Is sin weighing on your heart today? Take it to Christ. You will receive mercy at his throne. Is fear gripping you at the prospect of what's next in life? at the trials you have to endure, take it to Christ. You will find grace at his throne. God's mercy, it looks back and it covers the sins you've already committed and God's grace drives you forward to accomplish what God has planned for you. And we need both, so desperately we need both. And friends, they are ours. They are ours. Such is the tender, affectionate heart of Christ. He went to the cross for us in love. He took our penalty and he drank God's wrath in love. He rose from the grave and he ascended on high and became our great high priest where he intercedes for us in love. And he is there with you today, with you every day, with mercy and grace. Christ's heart beats for us. He loves us and he willingly came to earth, faced what we faced, suffered what we suffer and then returned to his throne of grace. And he's able to sympathize with you and bear with you every day. Are you living in this glorious light, dear friend? Are you often in his throne room seeking his mercy and grace? Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and grow a restless heart. Do not lose sight of God as trials and unknowns of even this complex day we live in come at us. Do not forget God loves you when the challenges of your life seem overwhelming. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Is Christ your priest? Have you bowed your knee and given your life to him? 
Christ will save you to the uttermost if you would simply draw near to God through him. Surrender all to Christ. Jesus himself says in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, beware a restless heart. Christ is our rest. He is rest for the restless. Let us enter that rest and come before the throne of grace. Christian, I want to leave you with one final thought. You thought I was done there, but I'm not. One final thought as we conclude this series. Because you and I, through Christ, have direct access to God, that makes you and I priests. In fact, the Bible even calls us priests. Twice in 1 Peter 2, we Christians are referred to as priests. 1 Peter 2.5 says we are a holy priesthood. And 1 Peter 2.9 then says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Because Christ has become the great high priest, you and I are now made priests under him. Like a priest of old, we interface directly with God. And like a priest of old, we have become the go-betweens for the lost world. People outside these walls don't care to know God. Most of them don't care at all. But you are a priest now. You represent God to them. You get to proclaim what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. This is the purpose of your priesthood. Think of Romans 12:1, which instructs us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your life is to be a living sacrifice. As priests, we don't sacrifice sheep. We sacrifice ourselves. Is your life holy? Is your life acceptable to God? Are you living for him? Are you giving him your all? What are you doing with your life? The whole point of your priesthood under the great high priest is to offer yourself up as a living sacrifice and proclaim Christ to the lost. I didn't finish reading 1 Peter 2.9, so let me read it again. Notice why you are a royal priesthood. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christ is our great high priest. He has brought us to God. Now will you tell others about him? Will you fulfill your role as intermediary, as priest, to offer your life as a sacrifice to God that others might be saved from their sins? Will you do that? Maybe this thought scares you. It scares me. That's okay. Take even this to the throne of grace where you will receive mercy for past failures and find grace to help you move forward to the life that God has called you to. Now let us pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son 
to die here, but then to rise and to go to intercede for us before the throne, a great high priest, one who cares, who cherishes us, whose tender affection is for us, who can sympathize with us in any weakness, anything we're suffering, anything we're going through. Christ is our priest. Lord, we thank you so much for for this work you've done. Jesus, we thank you for not throwing us out to the trash heap, though we deserve it from our sins, but even in our sin, you demonstrated your love by dying for us, reconciling us to God. We thank you for these truths. Bless us as we live in light of them. May we act as priests to you as well, carrying out the work you've set before us. It's in the name of our great high priest that we pray. Amen.